please pray with me. And now, Father, we come to you asking for your grace once again, as your saints have gathered around to sit at your feet, to hear your word, to penetrate our heart and our souls, and renew our minds, Lord. We come to you asking for your grace and your mercy to be upon us. For, Lord, your grace and mercy is everything, and without it we are so lost to ourselves. Father, we pray that in spite of all the challenges and all the difficult circumstances that we've had to face, Lord, that we would never forget that you are our faithful Father, and that you will continue to be so, and that through all the challenges and all the difficulties, we can always look to you to be the one who will guide and lead and give us hope and joy in spite of all the things that we must face. Father, thank you for leading us the way that you have all these past seven months. And as this year continues to progress, seeming as if there's no end in sight, Lord, we trust in you, knowing that you will be true to your promises. And now, Father, we pray that you will fulfill the main promise to which we are gathered here today, which is to be refreshed and renewed and to be rejuvenated by the very word of God through the preaching of the word. And so, Father, we pray that you will bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. A few years ago, we had a visitor coming to one of our worship services. And after it ended, he came up to me and introduced himself. And after all the pleasantries uh, went between him and I, he just basically hit me with a question I wasn't prepared for. And it was basically this question. Pastor, what's with all the praying? To which I responded, I beg your pardon? And he goes on to say, why do you pray so much in your worship services? You know, churches that I come from, the preacher prays twice, maybe three times, and we sing at least seven to eight different songs of praise. But you at your church, you prayed at least seven times, and you only sang four songs. What's up with that? Why do you pray so much in your worship service? Now, for those of you who might be new to our church or new to our worship style, uh, you might be having that same question as well, especially if you come from a church background where prayer is not a dominant feature as it is in our worship service, to where you too might be wondering, Pastor, why do you guys at NCF pray so much in your Sunday service? Well, let me see if I can try and explain it this way. Life teaches us that when people are in crucial relationships and yet they don't communicate with each other, other people suffer from that. Again, life teaches us that when people in crucial relationships are not communicating with one another, the people around them suffer. Some examples. When teachers are not communicating with the administrators of a school, the whole student body suffers. When mom and dad are not communicating with one another, the children of the household suffers. When the President of the United States is not communicating with the Congress or vice versa, the whole nation suffers. Yes, indeed, life teaches us that when people who are in crucial relationships with one another do not communicate, the people around them suffers. And guess what the Bible identifies as the most crucial relationship of all? That's right. It's the relationship between God and His people, the church. And when the people of the church are not communicating to their God in the form of prayer, the Bible tells us that the whole world suffers because of that. And as we take a look at our passage here in Hebrews chapter 4, I'm going to show you how that is so. In other words, I want to show you the importance of prayer by showing you the consequences of what happens, the fallout of what happens 
when people are not praying to their God. But the way that we're going to take a look at it is from the standpoint of the obstacles to prayer. I'm going to show you the importance of prayer by showing you the resulting consequences of not praying that stem from obstacles to prayer. Okay? So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today as it becomes to prayer. First, let's talk about the obstacles to prayer. Then we're going to talk about the consequences to the obstacle to prayer. And then we're going to end it with the solution for the obstacle to prayer. The obstacles, the consequences because of those obstacles, and finally the solution to get out of those obstacles. Okay? Let's begin by looking at the first point, the obstacle to prayer. Read again with me verse 14 of our passage where it reads as follows. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of of God, let us hold fast our confession. Okay, come on back. Now, I got to admit, as a newborn Christian, when I first read these verses, or verse, excuse me, in Hebrews 4, I simply interpreted it as a very nice, quaint, kind of sentimental thing that this author was saying about Jesus. Like, oh, that great Jesus, what a guy. He passed through the heavens for his people. Isn't that nice? Kind of interpreting as kind of like a hallmark moment, right? But as I came to study more of the Bible, I realized I was absolutely off, okay? Because the author of Hebrews is not trying to be quaint. He's not trying to be sentimental. No, he's sounding the alarm. He's trying to capture our attention of a real spiritual crisis, a spiritual crisis that he encapsulates in that last statement that he ends verse 14 with. It's the phrase that says, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. You see those two words, hold fast? In the original Greek in which this letter was written, it's actually made up of just one word. It's the Greek word kratomen. Kratomen, and basically that word kratomen means someone who is tenaciously, stubbornly, and even in a paranoid state of mind, clinging to something because of a threat that is threatening to take it away. That's kratomen. So a couple examples. When a mom is holding her child as she crosses a very crowded, busy street in the city, she's kratomen her baby girl. When a rock climber is clinging to the edge of a cliff so he doesn't fall 400 feet to his death, he is kratomen the edge of the cliff. Okay, That's what it means to stubbornly cling to something out of fear that is going to be taken away from you. And so with that in mind, you understand what the author of Hebrew is trying to convey. He's trying to tell us that as followers of Jesus, we need to be stubbornly clinging to something that is being threatened of being stripped away. And he calls this thing as our confession. Our confession? Yeah, our confession. But what exactly is this confession he's referring to? Well, in order to answer that question, you have to know a little bit of the background behind this letter known to the Hebrews. And so to help you shed some light on that, I want to quote to you New Testament scholar George Guthrie as he explains what's going on. Take a listen to what he says, quote, As Christianity spread throughout the Mediterranean world, followers of Jesus faced grave challenges. The pagan society misunderstood and mistrusted Christians. Opposition to Christianity also rose from within traditional Judaism, since many Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Therefore, those who converted to faith in Christ from various backgrounds often paid a high price in their jobs, family connections, friendships, and other social connections. Persecutions of Christians was common. Hebrews was written as a pastoral response to the needs of struggling Christians since some had already abandoned Christ and the church." End quote. Hmm. 
So the book of Hebrews was written for Christians who were suffering persecution and opposition for their faith. Opposition and persecution that was so severe that some of them have already left the faith and some were even thinking of following suit. Now when you understand that is the background, you can therefore decipher what this confession is. In fact, it's a confession that you know and I know and every child who steps in Sunday school on the very first day learns. Right? It's a confession that we teach them in song form, and it goes like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. That's the confession. But for the Christians that were being receiving of this letter, the Hebrews, they were struggling because they were being overwhelmed with setbacks, with struggles, with suffering, that as a result, they were losing the grip of this confession that Jesus loved them according to the scriptures. And as a result, they could not find it in themselves to pray. And friends, I am willing to bet that if there is a common reason as to why you struggle to pray, it's probably because of that. Oh, don't misunderstand. I am not implying that you're being persecuted for your faith as the way the Hebrew Christians were. But nevertheless, you too have suffered setback, struggles, difficulties, and trials, and tribulations to where the effect of it has had the same effect as it did for the Hebrew Christians. Maybe you're in a situation right now at work where due to the pandemic, the security of job of your job is now being seriously questioned. Or even before the pandemic, you live in a very toxic work environment where coworkers and managers and bosses have just made your life a living hell. Or maybe at home, you have a situation where you and your spouse cannot seem to get along. There is nothing but condemnation and criticism and condescension to where even the thought of divorce had the audacity of going through your mind or worse, coming out of your mouth or their mouth. Or maybe sadly, you've had to suffer the worst tragedy of all during this time of a pandemic, and that is having to say goodbye to a loved one due to death. And what made it worse is that due to the restrictions, you couldn't even be there by their side. You couldn't even visit them in the hospital. Maybe you couldn't even make it to the funeral. Hmm. Regardless of whatever variety of struggle, sorrow, or suffering that you have gone through, the effect of it has caused on you to loosen the grip of the confession that you were taught since you were a child, that God indeed loves you in Jesus Christ. And as a result, you can't fight it in yourself, lifting up your voice, lifting up your heart to God in sincere prayer. Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher, was absolutely right when he once said these words, quote, Prayers may be hindered by worldly sorrow. Some give way to sorrow so extremely that they cannot even pray. The tears of sorrow dampen the powder of prayer so that a Christian man cannot send his desires heavenward as he should. For many of us, the sorrows and struggles that we have gone through in life has caused us to loosen the grip to where we cannot seem to hold on to the truth that we are loved by God in Jesus Christ and it has hindered us in praying. But here's the thing, the author of Hebrews is giving us a warning of what happens when we allow that to occur. And that is something dark and something sinister starts to grow in us like a cancer that it results in us being endangered as well as other people around us being endangered by it. 
And to explain what I mean, let me go to my next point, the consequences to the obstacles of prayer. Read again verse 15 of our passage where it says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Come on back. Here the author of Hebrews is telling us the kind of God that our Jesus is. And what kind of God is our Jesus? Well, he's the great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. Now, I'm going to talk about what it means for Jesus to be our high priest in my next point. But for now, I want to focus on this idea of Jesus being sympathetic to our weakness. Christian, do you realize what that statement means? It means that as our God, Jesus is not some distant, he is not some detached, he is not some disinterested deity when it comes to his followers. No, quite the opposite. Our God, our Jesus, is so concerned and he is moved with such compassion whenever his people, you and I, followers of his, are suffering with struggles, with situations, with setbacks, with sorrows. To the point that he cannot turn a blind eye, he cannot have a deaf ear, he cannot look the other way. No, our God is deeply moved to where he cannot help but to respond. One of my favorite passages of scripture that truly emphasize this the most is Psalm 56 verse 8. Take a listen to what it says there about our God. You, O Lord, keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. And you have recorded each one in your book. The God of the Bible is the God of sympathy. He is the God of concern. He is the God of compassion for you, for me, especially in moments where you are overwhelmed with sufferings of sorrow, setbacks, and sadness. And the reason why is because he loves us with a great, astounding love. Let's try an experiment for a moment, a thought experiment. Let's imagine for a moment that our God is not like that. Let me ask you, Christian, what would happen to you? What would be the result if your Jesus, if your God was not this sympathetic, if he was not this concerned for you? Do you know what would happen? Well, the author of Hebrew kind of alludes to an indirect answer to that question in verse 16. Let me read it to you again. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here, the author of Hebrews tells us that because of Jesus' great love for us, we can be confident that we are going to receive mercy and grace. But let's continue with this thought experiment I just said a moment ago. Let's say our Jesus isn't like that. Do you know what that means? It means you can never be confident that you would ever receive mercy, that you could ever receive grace. And there is the question. What would happen to you? What would happen to any human being if they were convinced that they could never have grace and mercy? Two things, two horrible things. Let's look at it one at a time. First, let's consider what would happen if you could never receive mercy. What would happen? Well, when you eventually make some horrible mistake, which you will because we're not perfect, or whenever we find ourselves making an atrocious, sinful action, what's going to happen? You're going to be filled with such guilt and shame, and that guilt and shame will be so inescapable that you'll be constantly preoccupied about your guilt and shame to where you have nothing left in yourself to ever be concerned about anyone else's problems, anyone else's struggles, anyone else's issues. You're going to be just so consumed about you being filled with guilt and shame that you're no good to anyone else. A couple years ago, 
a movie came out that perfectly illustrates this very point that I'm making. It was a movie called Rachel Getting Married starring Anne Hathaway. And Anne Hathaway's character, her name is Kim, is the sister of Rachel, the title uh, character of the movie, right? And Kim is a real messed up girl. I mean, drug addicted, alcoholic, sexaholic, just crazy chaotic person who might not even live the very next day. I mean, she lives a very broken, chaotic life. And in one powerful scene in the movie, she's in an AA meeting where she explains how she ended up this way. You see, it turns out when she was in high school, she was babysitting her toddler brother, right? And as she was driving her, his brother, to the park, it started raining, and without warning, she got into a car accident where she accidentally killed him. And as a result, she felt nothing but guilt and shame that she tried to numb herself from with drugs, with alcohol, with illicit sex, with stupid living, anything that would kind of prevent her from being haunted from guilt and shame. But of course, it doesn't work because she makes this admission in one part of that scene, some very chilling words where she said this, quote, I struggle with God so much because I can't forgive myself and I don't really want to right now. I can live with it, but I can't forgive myself and sometimes I don't want to believe in a God that could forgive me. This is so chilling because it tells us in a very powerful way what happens when you live with this idea that you cannot receive mercy. And you know what happens? The more you think that you cannot receive mercy, the more you will get to the point where you'll say, I don't even want mercy. Even if it could be possible, I don't want mercy. And when a person doesn't want mercy, you know what else they want? They want nothing but to do nothing in their life but to just punish themselves. They spend all their lives coming up with various ways of how they can punish themselves, using all their time thinking about how can I punish myself? which means it's time away from them ever thinking of how they can be a blessing to others. That is what happens when you think you cannot have mercy. You end up saying, I don't even want mercy, and you waste all your time not helping others, not blessing others, but finding ways of punishing yourself. That's the first consequence to the obstacle of prayer because it stems from your doubt in that God loves you in Jesus Christ. Now let's move on to the second consequence of what happens to the obstacle of prayer. And that's where it's centered on this idea that you cannot receive grace. Grace. Now what is grace? We hear it all the time. Well, let me simply give you a clear definition. Grace is where you get something you do not deserve. Grace is where you get something, and this something, usually something great, something awesome, something astounding, something wonderful, something that makes life worth living. It's something like that that you get that you do not deserve. Now, when a person believes that they can never get something that they cannot deserve, they do not deserve, you know what ends up happening? That person starts thinking like this. If I cannot get something wonderful that I can never deserve, I need to therefore become someone who is deserving of these things. And so now they are driven to try and live such a way to where they can deserve every applause, every acceptance, every approval, right? In other words, they live their life trying to be the most deserving person of all. But here's a dark side to that. The more you start thinking that the only way you can live your life to where you can be exposed to good things, something wonderful, is by only deserving it, is that you start seeing other people the same way. In other words, not only do you see yourself as someone who has to be deserving of good things, you see other people 
who can only get the good things if they deserve it. Or put it more simply, when you start thinking that you cannot get grace, you start thinking that no one else should get grace either. And you know what happens when someone like that is around other people? Chaos, condemnation, hatred, conflict. Let's say for illustrative purpose, a person like this gets married and let's continue to say that this person is a man. And let's say that this husband comes home after a long day of work and he talks to his wife, first thing out of his mouth is say, honey, remember how I told you I need you to do the laundry and iron my shirt, right? Did you do it? To which the wife might say something like, oh, I'm so sorry, honey. I was so busy with the kids. I didn't get around to it. And as soon as she says that, the husband goes, what were you doing all day? What are you good for? You knew I needed that shirt. You know what tomorrow is? I have an interview for a promotion at work. Something that can make our lives so much better. And then this is what you do to help me through that? Nothing? What do you do all day anyway? Right? You're sorry? Don't tell me you're sorry. What do you being sorry have anything to do with this? How is that going to help me? That is a person who reacts when they feel they can never get grace. They also feel no one else should get grace. So there you have it. The two consequences that happens to the obstacle of prayer. Because you have no faith in God's love for you in Jesus Christ. You either become a self-hating person or you become a self-righteous person. Two kinds of people that are no good for anyone because you don't bring any blessing to people around you because you're so consumed with yourself. They also happen to be the two kinds of people who don't pray, at least not genuinely. And so the question is, how do we get rid of these issues? How do we avoid these consequences? Is there a way? I believe there is, and so does the author of Hebrews. And to explain, we go to our final point, <clears throat> the solution for the obstacles of prayer. Let's quickly recap what I've been saying so far. Because of the various sorrows and struggles and sufferings that we go through, it causes, enough, it causes us to loosen our grip in the confession that God loves us in Jesus Christ. And because that confession is not as sturdy, is not as solid in our hearts anymore, right? we start doubting that our Jesus could ever be sympathetic towards us. That results in us, first of all, not praying. It creates a big obstacle to prayer. But it also results in us being very skeptical of ever receiving grace and mercy, resulting us in either being a very self-hating person or a very self-righteous person. Two types of people who don't bless, two types of people who don't pray. Now, with that review, let's circle back to this idea of Jesus being our high priest because it's when we understand of Jesus being our high priest and the significance of that, that we're able to strengthen our grip once again on the confession that our God loves us in Christ Jesus. Let me explain. In the days of the Old Testament, there was only one way for God's people to be forgiven. And it was only by through one person, and that was the high priest. The one individual whom God chose to go into the most sacred part of the temple, known as the Holy Holies, one day of the year on the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur, so that in the Holy of Holies, he could offer sacrifices to God that would cause God's people's sins to be forgiven. Okay, That was the work of the high priest. It was a very important job. But here's the thing. In the Old Testament, we come to find that before the high priest could offer sacrifices on behalf of his people, God's people, he first had to offer sacrifices for his own sins. 
right? He had to deal with his own uh, situation of his own sinfulness. He had to have his sins atoned for first. Now, when you understand that from a certain perspective, you could interpret that as saying, wow, the high priest personally benefited from being the high priest because essentially he got first dibs on the greatest blessing of all, the forgiveness of sins. He had something to personally benefit of being the high priest, right? But not so with Jesus when he became our high priest. Jesus did not have any such benefit or any kind of benefit whatsoever by becoming our high priest. You know why? Because Jesus was sinless. He didn't have first dibs on the forgiveness of sins. He didn't have any sort of, of exclusive rights, first-hand, first-dib rights like that. He did not, which means when Jesus became our high priest, it solely and exclusively benefited us, his people, not himself. In fact, in order for Jesus to be our high priest, he actually had to pay a cost. He had to pay a great cost. What do I mean? Well, in the days of the Old Testament, when the high priest offered its sacrifice, it offered animal sacrifices. Bulls, goats, sheep, pigeons, what have you, right? And here's the thing. These animal sacrifices only provided temporary forgiveness. Temporary forgiveness. You know why? Because these sacrifices of animals were not considered sufficient to fully and permanently cover the sins of human beings because the life of animals are not as valuable as the life of human beings because human beings are made in the image of God. Animals are not. But here's the thing. When Jesus became our high priest and offered his sacrifice, he didn't offer bulls, he didn't offer goats, he didn't offer sheep or pigeons. He offered himself. Okay, And therefore, the resulting forgiveness that he accomplished by his sacrifice was a permanent, forever, eternal forgiveness. You know why? Because his life was way more valuable than your life, than my life, than any of our life. Because first of all, as I said before, he was sinless, as it says in verse 15. And second of all, he's God. He's God. He has the status of God. Right? And as a result, the accomplishing forgiveness, the, the, the ransom, the redemption, the forgiveness of sins was a permanent one. Consider what it says here in Hebrews chapter 7. We're starting in verse 26. It reads, He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for the people's sins. Jesus' sacrifice was far greater and far selfless than the sacrifices of the Old Testament high priest. Now you might be wondering, okay, nice little theology lesson here, Pastor John, but what does this have to do with the conviction, the confession that God loves us in Jesus Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked. And let me explain with kind of a silly illustration, but not really. Imagine for a moment there's someone in your life who hates your guts, and I mean loathes you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they take pleasure whenever you're suffering. They're rejoicing when you are humiliated, when you have massive setbacks, when your family is falling apart. They are just clapping and rejoicing and they're celebrating deep within their soul and maybe even with their friends, okay? Now, let's say you come to find that this person who hates you so much suffered a major tragedy. 
Maybe they found out they have stage four cancer, or maybe one of their children passed away in a tragic accident, or something terrible, like they got into an accident and they're now uh, paraplegic from the neck down. Now, if you're a decent person, you'll probably feel bad for that person, maybe even sad. But I'm pretty sure you're not gonna feel as bad or as sad as if that person was someone who loved you and someone who you love very much, like, I don't know, your parent, a child of yours, right? I don't care what, how good of a person you think you are, we would never feel so moved with sorrow and sympathy for a person who hates us and despises us so much when they're going through something very terrible in their life. But you know who would? You know who did? Jesus, God, our God, see? Remember, Jesus is our high priest, but he's also God. See, in the days of the Old Testament, the high priest, they had to get their sins forgiven. They were part of the guilty party who offended God, right? But Jesus is our high priest. He's part of the wounded party. He's part of the party that's wrong. That, that, he's God. He's the one who sinned against. And yet here he is coming to our side, being our advocate, being our defender, being our high priest, to where he gives his life for our lives, to where he sacrifices everything so that we could have life, to where he suffers our punishment so we would be spared from it? What's my point? My point is this, Christian. If Jesus loved you so much like this when you hated him, don't you think he would love you also when you are his follower? Don't you think that if your God was willing to go through that amount of suffering, that amount of humiliation, that kind of tragedy, that cosmic tragedy, when you were his greatest enemy, don't you think he would be moved with sympathy and compassion and concern as you go through various sufferings and struggles and trials in this life as his disciple? This is how you overcome the obstacle to pray. It's by remembering Jesus as your high priest. It's by remembering that the time where God would have been justified to just hate you and celebrate your condemnation of death. Instead, he chose to be cursed for you out of love so that he could save you and have forgiveness of sins, a reconciled relationship, eternal life, and blessings galore. That is your God. That is your Jesus. And the more you think about your high priest, the more your belief, your conviction, your confession that your God loves you becomes firmer, becomes stronger, and it becomes so embedded to you to where you will never be able to let it go. And as a result, your conviction that you can receive grace and mercy abounds more and more to where you become less and less of a self-hating or a self-righteous person, but now you become a self-giving person like Jesus, such as praying for other people. This is why we pray so much in our worship service, because the more we pray, the more we are reminded of how we're even to pray like this at all. Because our high priest, who currently, by the way, right now is praying for us, reminds us of how we are deeply loved. How we are deeply loved when we were his enemies and how we are deeply loved even more as his beloved people. Christian, do you understand that? 
Do you believe that? When you do, I guarantee you, praying as often as we do and praying on your own as often as you should do will be something that won't be causing of suspicion of those who witness you. It will be a cause of celebration and clear understanding of why we pray so often to our God. And so I hope and pray that as we gather soon and as we come together to pray, that it will be something that is not only natural, but something that you enjoy and celebrate in doing so that we can truly be a blessing to the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we think more about the implications of your Son, our Jesus, our God being our High Priest, God, may it strengthen our grip in the wonderful confession that is so true, a confession that we have taught our children throughout the generations, that Jesus truly loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. God, the enemy is trying to rip that confession away from our hearts. Let him not be successful and let it be instead reinforced as your people gather together and pray as a corporate body. So in this beautiful practice of speaking to our great God, we can be changed and transformed and the people of the world would greatly benefit because of it. Oh God, would you hear this prayer and every prayer for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.